The World of Dark Ages podcast presents Side Quests, tidbits and inspiration for the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Side Quests. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. In the side quest, we're going to take a look at what weapons and armor vampires in the Dark Ages setting would be using, uh, what weapons would be effective against vampires, and how the fact that vampires exist might change what weapons are used or what weapons would be appropriate for vampires given uh, the powers that they have. Now, there's quite a lot of caveats and explanation to get through first. Um, So I'll start with the caveats for the stuff that I want to talk about, which is sort of looking at the weapons that existed in the time period, what would a vampire use? Uh, now, the Dark Ages setting covers 1197 to 1230 to 1242, and most of this can be applied to all three editions of the game. Uh, so if, if something has changed, I'll mention it. Uh, also, this is focusing on Europe as well as the Crusader states. Things might be different in Muslim lands, but I, I don't know as much about the kind of weapons and armor that was used uh, in, say, the Middle East or North Africa as, as what was used in uh, in Europe. It wasn't as different, different as people might think. I mean, in 1197, um, people in uh, in uh, the Arabian Peninsula, they were still using mainly straight swords rather than curved swords. They sort of came in with the, the various Turkish and Kurdish um, riders, um, step riders that invaded the area uh, later on. Um, I'm also going to be ignoring the weapons tables from the books because, uh, to be honest, they aren't all that accurate. Um, also, we're, we're getting into stuff that isn't always modeled by weapon stats. So uh, what I want to do is I want to focus on uh, setting more than rules, what, what it would look like. Uh, and finally, I'm mainly looking at urban vampires. Vampires who make their havens in towns uh, and cities and what they might use for what you could call nightly self-defense uh, in case they're attacked by mockers or ghouls sent by a rival. If a vampire finds themselves in a duel or needing to assault another vampire, then they might equip themselves differently. And I think that's one of the things that you want to talk uh, about, Peter. Isn't that right? Yeah, I, I have some ideas that I would want to bring up for, for when the... Uh, for when a vampire would like to bring out uh, the heavy artillery, so to speak. Yeah, and and also, I mean, vampires who dwell outside of cities or who travel, they can equip themselves pretty much as they desire and, and as their resources allow. Mm. And of course, uh, when you're talking about weapons, the uh, thing to remember is the best weapon is al- always the one that you know how to use. I mean, um, a... Uh, um, a battle axe might be a really, really good weapon, but if you've never used one and you know how to use a spear instead, then the spear is a better weapon for you than the battle axe because you know how to use it. Uh, now, this isn't quite modeled in the game because you just have the melee stats. You might have specialities, but still. Uh, but it's it's worth remembering when, you, when people start talking about, ooh, what's the best weapon? Well, we'll start with the one you can actually use. Yeah, or the one you actually have. <laughs> yeah, that too, the one you have at hand. Um, a final note, I, um, when I talk, I will differentiate between wearing a weapon and carrying a weapon. Uh, wearing means it's on your person, as in a scabbard or tucked in your belt, and carrying means actually holding it in your hands. Um, I mean, usually people just talk about carrying a weapon, but there is a difference, and you might want to differentiate between, oh, he's wearing a weapon, as in he has it on him, but he's not carrying it uh, in his hands. Um, anyway, with all of that out of the way, the armor, shields, and weapons that an urban vampire might use. If we start with armor, it's quite a simple one. None. 
Uh, no civilian had any reason to wear armor inside a town or a city unless said town or city is under siege. So unless a vampire disguises themselves as a member of the city watch or local nobleman's guard, or perhaps a member of a knightly order if they have a chapter house in the city, they will attract a lot of attention if they wear armor. Also, armor is heavy, hot, and restrictive, so nobody wears armor unless they have to. However, there is an option for defense. If the weather is cold, heavy wool clothing does offer uh, actually not an insignificant amount of protection, especially against bladed weapons. Yeah, it's, uh, that's actually a point I, I wanted to bring up later on, but we, we can do it now because I'm, I'm thinking that uh, it's, it's also a very good weapon or a defense against uh, vampires' primary weapon, uh, and that is their fangs. Uh, when we, if we fast forward a few hundred years, there are quite a few fencing manuals that um, uh, talk about using uh, your cloak wrapped around your arm, both as a kind of shield, because at this time you, you're using lighter blades that can't cut as well, uh, and also to use the, uh, what's, what's hanging off your arm from, the, from your co cloak or cape as, as a kind of net to, to trap uh, your opponent's blade. Uh, but I'm thinking if, if you are attacked by a vampire, and it doesn't really matter if you're a vampire yourself or, or a mortal, uh, if, if you have a heavy wool cloak wrapped around your arm, uh, then it's going to take quite a lot for a vampire to bite through it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you think about how long will fangs be, yeah. uh, I mean, if you just take, say, a normal a modern coat, wrap it around your arm, just see how thick that uh, fabric's going to get. You just won't have the length with teeth to get through. You're going to have to rip it away first in order to get into... Um, the flesh. So if you if you use that, just put it up against uh, an, an attacking vampire, then you can buy yourself a bit of time as they try to get through it. Yeah, and, and as you said, in general, uh, wool clothes are quite durable, and especially if they're worn in layers, uh, because then they act kind of the same way that, uh, well, both medieval cloth armor and uh, modern-day ballistic vests work. It's it's the layer principle. You have a lot of layers that each on their own can't really stop anything, but if you add a bunch of layers together, it's going to do something. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, if you're it's it's the summer and you're in, in Italy, it's going to look kind of weird if you're wearing heavy wool clothing, but if you're, say, uh, north of the Alps and it's, uh, it's late... Um, fall then nobody's going to blink an eye if you're wearing a heavy wool cloak and also if you disguise yourself as say a monk you can get away with wearing uh, a hooded robe and if you make that out of very thick wool then most of your body's going to be protected by that mm, yeah so you just just don't don't uh, attract too much attention from faithful monks <laughs> yeah but no, I know think... you're latin if you need to fake fake a prayer or something Exactly, though I think we have established by this time that, that all monasteries are just filled with vampires anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, um, as for shield, uh, shields, well, uh, around this time in Europe, we basically have three types of shields. We have the kite shield, the heater shield, which is more prominent in later eras of the game, and then the buckler. Now, these three, the, the kite and the heater, are military shields that are used on the battlefield, but the buckler could be carried without too much comment in the city, especially if you're up to 1242. Uh, it is a very small shield. It's um, 
up to around 45 centimeters or 18 inches in diameter. And it's held in the hand rather than being strapped to the forearm. Um, as a side note, it was also sometimes made of iron, where other shields of this period were always wood. Uh, the small size and the fact that it's handheld rather than strapped means that you can have it on your belt, and some of them even had a hook on the front for the purpose of hooking it onto the belt, and you can deploy it quickly in response to danger. And we know that the buckler was used in civilian terms um, at least uh, up in the 13th century due to a book that is, uh, it's got a number of names, um, sometimes called the I-33, sometimes called the Valpurgis Manuscript. Uh, this is a partial fencing instruction manual from around the end of the 13th slash beginning of the 14th century, which shows civilian martial arts, specifically sword and buckler play. So we know that civilians in the cities did learn how to use the buckler, uh, whether it be for sport or self-defense. And, and I want to talk about this book a bit more later, but it's uh, a really good introduction to the fact that uh, there were civilian martial arts in the Middle Ages. Yeah, and for for those of you who are curious, yes, the term swashbuckler uh, comes from uh, from this kind of shield, uh, and it's uh, the, the word itself is is quite a bit later. It's from the sixteenth century, and uh, there is one text I can't remember who. Uh, it's it's basically um, uh, the boomer generation of the time complaining about the youths going around. Uh, swashing their bucklers, basically, is what they're <laughs> saying, and and that means it's it's um, they people went around, and you could often hang your buckler uh, on your sword belt because both of them would be carried on the usually on the left side if you're right-handed, yeah. so you could grab them both, and and if you rattled your your sword against your buckler, it would make a noise. You would swash your buckle, and that was kind of what what. Uh, uh, the the um, rambunctious youth of the day uh, would do to uh, basically call people out for for a duel or a fight. Uh, so so that's where that term comes from. Yeah. Uh, so we come to weapons, and from the start, there's a whole host we can discard. First is any kind of missile weapon, because nobody carries a bow or a crossbow inside a city unless they're nobles going to or coming from a hunt or possibly a city guards or if once again, the city's under siege. You might have soldiers carrying it, but you're going to attract attention if you carry that. Yeah. Um, we can also discard uh, two-handed weapons. Spears are used by guards. And pole arms are at this point mainly um, a thing used by peasants, either levies or in a revolt. And two-handed axes are extremely rare and not something you walk around with inside the city. There is, however, one two-handed weapon that is the exception. Peter, do you have any suggestions to what yeah, that might I'm be? I'm thinking of the quarterstaff. Exactly, the quarterstaff. Uh, nobody's going to bat an eyelid if somebody comes into the city with a quarterstaff, um, because uh, this was the weapon of the wanderer, especially pilgrims. Uh, they talked about the pilgrim staff, actually, because, I mean, as anyone who's um, been out walking in the countryside knows, if you have a staff, then that's a great use for uh, for walking i i think you know more about this than me since i live in denmark which is yeah, exactly I, flat. Was going, <laughs> I was going to say that for for those of us who live in countries that actually have both hills and mountains we we know how useful they are and uh, and and also not only as as um, a walking aid uh, when when out hun uh, hiking uh, it can also be used uh, as uh, uh, as a tool 
for for instance, if you're a shepherd, you you can use it to to poke your sheep to go in the right direction. And and also there there are a few uh, descriptions of how um, wanderers, not necessarily pilgrims, but just travelers, uh, defend themselves against wolves with uh, with their quarterstaffs. So so if you have about six feet of hardwood, you will be able to crack both wolf skulls and other, perhaps not skulls, but at least break bones. Quite yeah, easy. I mean, it, it may just, just be a length of wood, but seriously, it is a very effective weapon, uh, especially since in the cities you're not going to... Um, uh, encounter someone wearing armor most of the mm. time and uh, you can do a lot of damage with like you said a solid piece of wood and for vampires you might surreptitiously surreptitiously sharpen one end of it so that you have an improvised wooden tipped spear uh for staking uh so there are some options with that the only problem is since i mean we mentioned that it is the tool of the wanderer so if you walk around in the city with a quarterstaff people are going to assume that you are a traveler and react to you as a traveler. So if they keep seeing you in the city with the quarterstaff, they're going to wonder why you haven't uh, moved on yet. Yeah, um, that, that's actually a good point. And the same would go if you pose as, for instance, a shepherd, because you wouldn't really be wandering about in town. Well, if, if you had your sheep with you and you bring them to the market or something, then you would probably have your, your staff. But you wouldn't really walk around with your work tool so to speak uh, <laughs> just just going to the pub or something like that uh no so this leaves us with one-handed weapons we can discard the flail which is an extremely rare weapon anyway so let's take a look at the rest first there's clubs and cudgels just like a quarterstaff a cudgel is not something to sneeze at um, you can do a lot of damage uh, to an unarmored opponent and even to an armored opponent with a stout club however if you walk around carrying a club uh, people are go probably going to think that you're a mugger. It's it's not really that much seen as a weapon of self-defense, um, but uh, it's it's not something that's immediately going to make people wonder why the hell you're carrying it. They're probably just going to give you uh, a wide berth and you might get questioned by the local authorities. Um, so what about a knife? Um, well, just about everyone at this time carried a knife since it was a great tool and you needed to eat with. Um, if you were invited um, as a guest somewhere, you were generally expected to bring your own uh, knife for, uh, for eating. Uh, you weren't uh, given cutlery even as a guest unless you were visiting, say, a king or something. Yeah, and and at this time forks uh, haven't hadn't been invented yet. So no, you you had some like two pronged things, but they were mainly for taking food, uh, slices of meat from the center of the table to your trencher. They they weren't for eating with. Uh, and incidentally, in uh, if you were a traveler or just you know going out to eat and you went to a tavern, you weren't giving a knife either. Um, I actually have a replica of a knife that is period accurate. Uh, and the blade is shorter than the grip. It's not really a great weapon. It's also single-edged. It doesn't have much of a point on it. it. I would say it's marginally better than just punching someone with your fist, but not by much, really. And it doesn't have a guard, so uh, I'm afraid that if I tried to stab someone with it, my hand would go up on the blade and i cut myself. So it really is sort of a, a, a last uh, resort to uh, your, your knife. It's not a... A weapon as such but longer than the knife is the dagger 
So in 1197, daggers are mainly seen as being a backup weapon for a knight, but certainly by 1242, daggers are starting to become uh, actually fashionable accessories for the wealthy young burghers who swagger about, now that you, you mentioned the swashbucklers, mm-hmm. uh, swagger about with these blades to show off their wealth and privilege. And if we go about 100 years into the future from here, there's actually uh, complaints made by the... Um, uh, city councillors of London against the Hanseatic League saying that the young Hanseatic merchants of the Steel Yard, which was the officers of the Hanseatic League in London, that they were just walking about London prominently displaying their daggers and, and being sort of uh, intimidating because they could get away with it. Um, so it's it's, yeah... They, they swagger about showing wealth and privilege. And actually, some peasants and other low-status people are, uh, at this point, starting to upgrade their knife, knives to a new type of dagger, the bollock dagger, which is called this because the design makes it look like a cock and balls. And lowbrow humor is not just for modern times. I mean, people would look at that and go, haha, it looks like a cock and ball. That's funny. Yeah, and speaking of that, there is around this time, which is uh, in the 1300s, um, a type of, of belt bag that is often called a kidney bag because it's kind of kidney shaped. Yeah. Uh, it uh, y- you see some depictions of them being worn uh, at the front, and then there's um, in the strap holding the bag to the belt. There's a hole where you can put your bollock dagger, so it basically looks like a, a, a huge cock and balls yeah um so and and these are actual paintings i don't know if anyone uh, any one of them is from from a church but like from manuscripts and and things like that they are abundant yeah so basically like uh you could definitely imagine some young merchant going around look uh, saying look at me look at my massive balls look at my big cock and some people would laugh and other people would go oh seriously dude yeah <laughs> um so a dagger would definitely be an option even in 1197, it wouldn't look out of, out of place as long as the weapon matches the rest of the character's outfit. And the dagger, especially if you get into close combat, is a really, really effective weapon. It's made for stabbing. It can cut. So it's a good choice. It's not the best, but especially in an urban setting, having a short blade is a, a, a very good uh, a good choice. Yeah, it, it goes back to, to what we mentioned earlier, that the best weapon is the one that you have at hand. Uh, and the dagger was probably, at least in a civilian situation, the weapon that was most often used and, and that killed the most people because that's what you had around. If, if you're sitting in, in a tavern and there's a brawl breaking out, then you can easily just grab your dagger and, and stab someone to end the fight. Uh, and and this is um, uh, we we get descriptions of these that that there are fights breaking out and they also end very easily because someone just draws their dagger and and stabs someone and even if you survive if if you've been pierced by a couple of inches of steel no matter the body part you're probably not going to uh, put up a fight for for that much longer no exactly so, and, and so yeah I I would say that the dagger would probably be the most prominent and in some ways useful weapon to yeah have and of course uh there um the dagger uh being uh, primarily a piercing but also a cutting weapon is very dangerous in that even uh the slightest scratch as long as you break the skin then in the middle ages the person you've wounded is in trouble because of infection infection was the biggest killer of all 
Um, and that's yeah. why uh, in many places there were specific laws on injury where there was one set of laws if you injured someone without drawing blood and another set of laws if you injured someone uh, and drew blood because they realized just how uh, dangerous it was as soon as you'd drawn blood. Um, yeah, and, and speaking of laws as well and what you mentioned about being a traveler carrying a quarterstaff, there are quite a few laws uh, especially when it comes to damages and stuff like that, that make a difference between if you injure uh, a, a local citizen or if you injure a traveler. So if that's something you want to include in your game, that uh, that you're you're kind of you're not necessarily an outlaw or that uh, you don't have any legal rights, but you will have less legal rights in a lot of places as a foreigner or just an out of towner. You can. Uh, for instance, in Sweden, there are examples like, yeah, if if you are a person from the city, city, then this law applies to you. But if you are someone from out of town coming into the city, then these rules apply to you. So, so that could also be something that affects the situation if you if you would like to include it. Yes, and there will also have been different rules, uh, actually depending on the time of year, because there would be different rules when there was a fair or a market. Uh, then uh, they, they, there was a specific expression called market laws. You would have a yeah. new kind of rules, and that, that might also there might also be rules on what you were allowed to carry um, or wear in regards to weapons. Like you might be allowed to carry a quarterstaff at market, but you wouldn't be allowed to wear a sword, for example, because they realized that at markets people would be drinking more and tensions would run higher so um it's it's something it, it it takes a bit of research to find out but it's really something that will allow you to bring the setting to uh, to life uh so to speak now that we're talking about vampires mm. um so f- up from the uh, the dagger there's a short sword but they didn't really make short swords in the period that dark ages covers some people might still have um uh, a huge sax or possibly even a very well made uh, gladius from older times but uh, it, it's not something that that you know they would they would carry around for self-defense it would more be something that they would they would have um in case they they figured that they might get into uh to a fight or if they were if they were going traveling um so we're left with three one-handed weapons the mace the battle axe and the arming sword and then there are two other swords that i'll mention at the end of this but we'll we'll focus right now on the mace the battle axe and the arming sword of these the mace is the best at dealing with armor the sword does the most damage to unarmored flesh and the axe sits in between being good against armor and almost as good as a sword against flesh uh, with that, one might think that the axe would be the best choice. However, both the, both the axe and the mace, mace were seen as battlefield weapons, and carrying one around in the city would cause a lot of attention. The sword, however, is pretty much the best weapon for civilian self-defense. Uh, the reasons for this are plentiful. First and foremost, the sword is better for defense than an axe or a mace. It is balanced better, so that you can more easily recover from a strike and use the sword to parry. And it's also double-edged, so if you imagine you do like a standard uh, strike from your shoulder and you miss your opponent, you can quite quickly recover and do a strike with the back, or what we call short edge. So you're threatening your opponent uh, more like that. Um, An axe or a mace's strength is the lever effect with a substantial mass at the end of the handle. But this also means that it's harder to recover because the lever effect pulls your uh, strike away from you. So you have to overcome that 
to bring it back, and with a sword you're parrying with metal rather than with a wooden handle, and the sword has a crossguard which protects your hand in case an opponent's blow skips down the blade towards your hand. Um, the axe and the mace are both great with a shield, uh, because the shield can act as your defense, but if you have no shield, or you just have a very small shield in case of the buckler, the sword is a better. And the sword's main weakness, um, especially when you get up to 1230, 1242, is armor, um, especially metal armor, and you're not uh, going to see that in, in the city. Uh, also, a sword has a better reach than an axe or a mace, and it's more forgiving if you mistime the blow. Uh, because if you mistime the blow with an axe or a mace, you either miss completely or you just smack your opponent with a wooden haft. If you miss time with a sword, you might not strike with the sweet spot of the sword, but you might still hit with some uh, sharp metal. And finally, swords are much better in the thrust than axes and maces. You can thrust with some axes. If you imagine they have a bit of an upswept point, you can thrust with that point. Uh, but the sword is better, even though that uh, the swords in this era, they have a relatively broad point. But since they're not going to go up against armor, that doesn't really matter. And then there's the matter of how you wear swords versus how you would wear an axe or a mace. For the latter two, uh, you can either stick them through your belt or you can hang them down from your belt. If you thrust them through your belt, then in order to draw them, you'll first have to push them up, then grab the handle, then draw the weapon out, and then adjust your grip uh, down on the handle so that you hold it properly. Uh, and if you hang it from your belt, you now have a heavy bit of metal, and in the case of an axe, a sharp bit of metal, swinging around near your leg as you move, and that's not something you want. No, that's that's usually a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, the sword, meanwhile, is worn uh, grip up in a scabbard. Uh, by the way, do you know the difference between uh, a scabbard and a sheath? Uh, I would say that the sheath is usually for, for a knife or a dagger and a scabbard is, is with a belt and everything for a sword. Yeah, and also um, a scabbard uh, is rigid and a sheath is flexible. Uh, oh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, just, just an exciting thing there. Uh, anyway, the sword is worn in a scabbard on your belt, so in order to deploy it, you just grab the handle, you pull it out, and it's ready to use. You can even, uh, as uh, students of Japanese... Uh, swordsmanship no you can even perform an attack while you're drawing your sword you basically draw it towards your opponent uh, so it's a very very quick weapon to deploy and in a situation where you have a weapon for self-defense you want the one that you can deploy faster because you're not going to be walking around with it in your hand all the time you're not necessarily going to see your enemy coming as you would on a battlefield so you want to be able to in case you're jumped from a dark alley quickly deploy your weapon and that's where the sword uh, shines so with all that we come to the conclusion that the sword is the best weapon for a vampire to wear for self-defense uh, and it also uh, it's also the one that comes with the least amount of comments since swords were worn for that purpose in towns and cities uh, and so we come back to the Valpurgis manuscript as mentioned this is an instruction manual in sword and buckler use and for the most part uh, it depicts uh, a burger and a monk with a tonsure. Uh, he's sometimes referred to a, as a priest in the text. However, towards the end of the book, uh, the, the burger is replaced by a woman. So this sh shows us that civilian sword and buckler play was popular enough that books were made on the subject and it was practiced by both male and female burgers as well as the clergy. Uh, so a sword and buckler combination will be common enough not to attract unwanted attention. Um, so that's, that's really what I see as the ultimate 
combination, both in terms of what's good for defense, but also uh, what won't attract attention, at least if you're in, in a city and generally also in a town. Um, yeah, I, I would throw in the caveat that uh, it depends quite a bit on your social status. Definitely. In, uh, in, in quite a few places. Uh, because or maybe we uh, should say perceived social status because oh yeah yeah that's that's if, a much much better if you can status, if you can afford fancy clothes yeah uh, yeah uh, and and also I I would say that uh, you you also have to uh, make the difference between what was a popular pastime and what was actually everyday carry because. Uh, at around this time, uh, you also started to getting, um, or it might be a bit later, but you in England you started to getting laws mandating everyone practicing with a longbow uh, after church each Sunday, or if it was before church, can't remember. Um, I think it was after, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, maybe you need to take out some aggressions after <laughs> you've been sitting and listening to do some Latin mass for, for a couple of hours. Uh, but But so that means that quite a few people in England uh, would know how to use a longbow or a bow, but they probably wouldn't walk around with them uh, on, 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 on the city or down, downtown. Uh, and I would say that the same kind of goes with, with the sword and buckler, that, yeah, you, there is a big chance that you have studied it and you can use it, but you don't necessarily walk around with it every day downtown, perhaps if you're traveling or if there's... Uh, like uh, not necessarily a war going on, but if, if it's like a rough time and... and uh, There's unrest kind, between kind of like the nobles if, and the, the citizens. Yeah, exactly. And and, and to make kind of a, a modern comparison that, especially in the US, you can see that when there's elections or other you know, or, or crisis or, or something happening, uh, the amount of people buying uh, guns more or less skyrocket. So I would say that in, in times of trouble or, or at least perceived crisis, then people might start walking around with, with swords and bucklers more than they would do if it's just your normal everyday, I'm just going popping down to the market to buy a few eggs kind of situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, finally, there are two other sorts that, sorts that were likely around in 1242 that needs mentioning. I say likely around because when it comes to weapon archaeology, it's difficult to say exactly when weapons came around. We can say for certain that at some at, at a certain point the weapon existed, but when it started, we don't know. But for this purposes, we're saying that they exist in 1242. Uh, the first is the falchion, which at this point is like a mix of a machete and a straight razor. It was uh, forward-heavy, obviously designed for strong cuts, but with a very fine edge that would be ruined if it struck uh, metal. The theory is that padded cloth armor was becoming very, very prevalent on the battlefield, that um, anyone who couldn't afford metal armor could afford padded cloth armor. Uh, and so this sword was designed to deal with it. Uh, as you can imagine, if it cuts cloth easily, it'll, it's also going to do quite a number on flesh. So it might be a good weapon of choice in an urban setting where you're not expecting armor. However, it is a fairly new weapon. Uh, and because of its design, it's clear that it's different from an ordinary sword, so it will cause attention. And since it's not as well balanced as an arming sword, it's not that good of a choice. But if you're going for just like maximum damage, to uh, unarmored flesh or someone wearing wool as their uh, as their defense, then a falchion is a good choice. 
The other weapon is the so-called Great Sword of War. Not a great sword, uh, but a Great Sword of War. Uh, the Oakshot Type 12A, if you're a sword nerd. Uh, these were a new type of sword that appeared around the middle of the 13th century, might have been there earlier. They were large, heavy, with a fairly narrow point, and they were mainly designed to be used in two hands, though a sufficiently strong and enduring person could use it in one hand. They seem to have been designed to handle the more and more advanced armors that the wealthiest of knights begin to wear at this time, uh, for example, adding a coat of plates to their mail armor. Uh, but they fizzled out of existence after about a century, probably because they simply could not do anything against actual plate armor. Now, for some vampires, this would be the perfect weapon for self-defense. If you have potence or just a lot of strength or a willingness to use Vitae in every combat, you can use it in one hand in combination with a buckler. And since it just looks like a slightly longer, wider version of a normal arming sword with a slightly longer grip, it won't attract any more attention than an arming sword would, but being bigger and heavier, it is going to do more damage. Uh, so that was my take on equipping an urban vampire. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Peter. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking that because now we've basically gone through what the the historical aspect of, of things, uh, and I'm 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 thinking more if if we want to look at at a vampire uh, and and see what kind of strengths that a vampire has uh, a, a compared to to a mortal. Uh, and see what kind of weapons that would actually be uh, really effective for a vampire to use. Uh, so, so first you have you you kind of uh, touched it the, on it already uh, that if bigger weapons are usually always better, or at least they they do more damage. Uh, and so, if you have potence or or a high strength, or like you said, willingness to to spend uh, vitae, uh, then then a huge sword uh, or an axe, for that matter, would also. Uh, be kind of useful um, and especially and what I'm thinking of uh, if if you like really want to bring out the heavy stuff uh, are crossbows uh, be, because at uh, crossbows are around at this time and they haven't really become really that strong yet but if we go forward a few hundred years you you start to get the really powerful crossbows with that could have draw weights of up to 500 pounds or more i think there are some that are like in the in the thousand pound uh draw weight yeah there were some uh, of the, then, the then big you basically ones. need yeah you, you basically need machinery to uh to draw them and and there's usually some kind of um hand crank um and and of course the main problem with this and the reason why longbows stayed such an effective battlefield weapon for for such a long time is that during the time it takes for you to to span and and loose uh, a crossbow, you can fire multiple arrows from a longbow. But that's and and of course it's it's really heavy to to crank uh, a heavy longbow or sorry a heavy crossbow. Or for that matter, you have all these different kind of mechanical devices. Yeah, there was a reason uh, why they were... used those big shields to hide behind when yeah, they exactly. reloaded their crossbows. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so. The, those come, came around in uh, really in the 1400s, where you basically had. Uh, there are some pretty cool depictions of, of uh, crossbowmen carrying these huge shields on their backs, and they often have a spike at the bottom. And, and the idea is that they would turn their backs uh, to the enemy to crouch down and, and reload. Uh, 
I'm I'm not sure if I would want to do that. Uh, quite often, you also have a separate soldier basically just holding the shield for them to crouch down behind. Uh, and I would be much I, I would feel much safer uh, with that kind of arrangement yeah. because you never know if you accidentally poke your head out if uh, if you turn your um, back towards the enemy. Uh, but but yeah, so so we have these really heavy crossbows. Uh, that that can't really be be used very very quickly, but if you have a few dots of potence, if you have a few dots of celerity, if you are an undead vampire that doesn't uh, suffer fatigue uh, or shortness or breath or or anything of the like, you could probably use this very eff- effectively, um, and you would also be able to use the kind of spanning mechanisms. Uh, or devices that were used for for lighter crossbows, even for a huge, heavy crossbow. Uh, there's there's one instrument called the goat's foot lever, yeah. uh, which which is basically it's a lever that that you use to to span your crossbow, and those can be used for quite powerful crossbows. But but again, you're you're just using your own. Uh, arm muscle uh, and and your body muscle against um, against this lever and against the strength of the of the bow, uh, which means that it at at a certain time you you probably wouldn't be able to or a certain weight it would be too heavy uh, if you're mortal. But if you're a vampire with a few dots of potence, you could probably use that on a bow that is strong enough that no mortal could actually. Uh, be able to to uh, span it, uh, so I'm I'm getting these kind of ideas on on, on especially on the battlefields or or if uh, there are vampires attacking each other where where you have uh, a hail of of crossbow bolts just raining down from from just a couple of uh, of ghouls or or vampires with a few dots of potence and and some celerity, you could you could really do some damage then. Yeah, and I I'm, I'm thinking that uh, some people might think, well, couldn't you just make uh, an English warbow uh, really really powerful? But with the the warbow or the what uh, people tend to call the cro- the longbow, um, it it's really up to the kind of wood you can find. Certainly, you can have some really insane draw weights on those things i think there was talk of some of them having a draw weight of like 180 pounds which is basically you have to pull back 180 pounds with one arm and your back muscles and everything but that's that's the upper limit really yeah exactly and uh it's it's not not just uh with your arm you're basically using three fingers to lift a full-grown man that's that's the kind of (laughs) weights we're talking about uh, and yeah and and you uh, you that's that's really the crux of the problem there because uh, the the power of of a longbow is decided by the thickness of of the piece of wood that you use and also its length so at a certain point you can't really have a, a, a piece of wood that is really 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 long it would be more powerful, but then you, it would be unwieldy and you couldn't really use it. Uh, and the problem as well with uh, with longbows and warbows, uh, or most European bows, is that they're made of one single piece of wood. Yeah, exactly. So to find a, a piece of wood long enough to to be able to be used uh, for, for a bow like that, 
it's it makes it harder. But if you have a crossbow bow that is later on, they are uh, made from from uh, steel. Uh, but before that, they are made of composite material, so so horn and wood and stuff like that. Yeah, you but basically you laminate have a shorter it. bow. Yeah, exactly, laminated. Uh, but since you have a shorter bow, you can make <coughs> them thicker and stronger, uh, and you don't have the same problem with um, with having to find just one piece of material that can can hold the entire weight. Uh, of course, uh, a longbow in the hands of of a vampire would also be an effective weapon. But you still wouldn't get the same kind of forces that you can get in, especially a metal crossbow. Uh, and again, like we mentioned with the, with the quarter staff, that if you uh, if you remove uh, the uh, the metal tips of it, or if you sharpen them, you, you basically have uh, sp- stakes that you can aim at at an opponent, uh, which again would probably be quite a horrifying weapon uh, f- f- to use against vampires. Uh, because a staked vampire is uh, is taken out of the action uh, quite uh, quite handily. So yeah, you would imagine that um, experienced vampire hunters, uh, if you have the the Inquisition and there might be others, that that they would be looking into this idea of launching arrows and bolts that are wood tip because not only as you said you can stake them but you can also stake them afar so you're out of the effective range of of the vampire at least for a little while um and and it is a scary thought to basically have uh, a bruja uh, who has maybe one or two old ghouls that have had time to develop a little bit of potence a little bit of celerity equip them with heavy duty crossbows that starts getting nasty very very quickly yeah. Um, and and a note a note on crossbows, by the way, is that uh, at they they are quite common uh, from from kind of this time onwards, and and usually as a kind of um, as, as a hunting tool yeah. uh, for for the peasantry. But but when uh, but later on uh, it becomes a real threat, and and during the especially during the early 1300s, uh, or basically throughout the 1300s. You uh, you have quite a few situations in Scandinavia where the nobility starts fearing the peasantry uh, because their their crossbows become so effective against even armored opponents that they're starting to become uh, a power factor to deal with. So so you have these situations where again, especially in in Scandinavia or at least in Sweden, uh, where you have these smaller peasant revolts where where the the peasants uh, turn in into basically the fourth pillar, really. Uh, we talked about the three pillars: the, yeah. the nobility, the clergy, and the and the burghers. But in Sweden, we also had the peasantry, uh, and because because they have bows to uh, hunt knights with, basically, <laughs> and they have uh, huge forests to hide in if and and to ambush uh, their opponents in, uh, should they want to. Uh, and if if we go by the legal aspect, of course, the the nobility uh, realized the potential of this. So so what we still had for quite some time was uh, was the idea of of a levied um, fighting uh, force that that in times of of war uh, peasants would have to serve serve for a time in in the armies. And there are actually laws from uh, I think this is most of them are from the thirteen. Uh, 13 and 1400s uh, and and just some examples of uh, of what uh, a free 
peasant uh, were expected to have in in certain places in Sweden. So, for example, in in Helsinge, uh, you were expected to have uh, a, a bow or perhaps a crossbow, a sword or an axe, a shield, an iron hat, uh, what is called a musa, which is probably a, a chainmail koi for a hood, uh, and either um, or, or yeah, either that or or a chainmail shirt. Uh, in Södermanland, uh, you were expected to have uh, all of these things, uh, or an axe isn't specified. You're supposed to have a sword, actually. Uh, but you can also exchange your uh, chainmail uh, for uh, a coat of plates. Uh, so you have these, uh, you, you have quite a few, like, these are quite well-armed peasants. Yeah. Uh, and and even though the quality, they probably inherited most of it, like it's it's handed down. And if, if we look at illustrations from, uh, there's, uh, there's a guy called Paul Donstein, uh, sorry, Dolenstein, uh, who was a, a German mercenary uh, fighting for the Danes in Sweden in the early 1500s. <laughs> uh, and what's cool about him is that he he was quite good at drawing, and his his drawings, well, they're not they're not pencil, obviously, but it, they they kind of these simple drawings, and they're very well detailed. And and he illustrates uh, both his own uh, Landsknecht uh, mercenary friends and their equipment and clothes and the Swedish peasant armies or peasant soldiers that, that they were facing. Uh, and what's interesting is that the, the mercenaries of course have, have the modern equipment, uh, but the Swedes, they, they run around with uh, arms and armor that is basically between 30 and 50 years old at least. So yeah, you, you would probably have your old sword uh, that was handed down by your father in like hanging about in in your house somewhere uh, but then again if it's if it's some just something that you might use uh, like once in your lifetime yeah you you probably don't need anything more than that but there were still weapons around uh, very much so uh, the same thing happened in in germany uh, sort of starting in the middle of the 13th century and really kicking off in the 14th where more and more cities became free cities where they were yeah. only um, under the emperor rather than a lower noble and so they were ruled by a city council and the city council mandated that um, citizens who owned property would also have to be part of the citizens militia and have to own uh, just like with the peasants a certain uh, amount of armor and weapons and you could be fined if you didn't own uh, enough armor and weapons relative to the wealth that you have so that if you were for example a master tradesman a master carpenter uh, you were expected to have quite the collection of weapons and you were also expected to spend x number of days uh, a year practicing with these weapons so that you were ready if the city were attacked uh, and you can definitely imagine in the world of darkness vampires encouraging this in order to have armed um, uh, and, and trained people to use in their nightly schemes and uh, in order to make weapons in cities more common so that they could get away with carrying them in case they wanted to um, 
in case they wanted to you know get violent with other vampires yeah or or you could you could switch it completely around that that the vampires would uh, would uh, discourage uh, the use of, and training of of weaponry yeah. because uh, then it's a lot easier to hunt if if the people aren't armed. Exactly. Uh, so, it's, so it's something so yeah, to think of. The, but but it's an it, it's an interesting um, idea, and and again, you could use it like uh, as a contrast. Like for instance, in uh, in a city ruled by um, by more peaceful vampires, they perhaps uh, want to discourage uh, peasants using or, or the the civilians using weaponry. But but like uh, in in a city where uh, with, with a more martial uh, vampire ruler, uh, they would probably encourage it a bit more. Or, or since vampires think over centuries and <clears throat> or, or at least decades, you could have it as a kind of uh, a plot, not necessarily a twist, but a plot point that that all of a sudden the the prince of some city has started to encourage uh, the citizens to to carry and train with weapons. And so, what is he up to? Ah. Uh, kind of like that, because yeah, it's it's gonna take a few years until you you've actually um, made this happen, and and like the the people have actually started training until it's it's useful. But again, vampires, if they if it's something they have, it's time. So exactly. So one final thing. Uh, now that that you uh, started this talk about how vampires might affect weapons and armor, is that you might have ancient vampires. Uh, who are also seventh generation or better vampires who remember the glory days of Rome and who might have a crafts uh, skill of six or above. And in that case, you can definitely make the case for uh, more advanced armors, more advanced weaponry uh, that that these vampires can make with their skill. And they might remember the uh, Lorica Segmentata of the, the Roman legions, which was a very, very effective uh, type of armor, if they combine that with the more modern advances in male armor, coat of plates, you can start having vampires who might have more advanced armor, leading to other vampires needing more advanced weaponry to conquer that. So you kick off a bit of an arms race uh, some decades or even a century before you see the big arms race with uh, plate armor becoming prevalent among uh, among the mortals. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good idea. I, I almost, uh, or I, I thought you were going to go the other way. That since you have a bunch of of real old uh, vampires, you would see people running around with uh, Roman gladii uh, <laughs> as as the sidearm, uh, which which really isn't uh, that a, a crazy idea. I know that because uh, I don't know if we've talked about it or or if I need to do it, but but. Uh, Weapons. Well, I mentioned it that you usually inherited weapons, and and what would often happen is at least uh, amongst the people that that care about it, uh, because you have fashion when or fashion trends when it comes to weaponry oh, as yes. well. So quite often you would see that there is an older blade, and they have mount, mounted uh, a newer, more modern, more hip grip uh and scabbard to it oh yes uh, definitely and, and there is one sword um that is if if i remember it correctly the blade is actually a pattern welded blade from the 7th century but it's mounted to a 16th century uh katzbalger uh grip mm. uh, so so you you had a sword that 
stuck around for at least a thousand years. It, it, it was probably a sword that wasn't used very much because then you would have to sharpen it and that literally eats away at the sword. Uh, but it's still kind of cool to see that, that you could perhaps have a very traditional uh, Ventru, for example, who is, of course, wearing the modern fashion of the day because that's how a nobleman and ruler is supposed to act and behave. But he's carrying at, as his sidearm um, either his original Gladius from from the Roman period, or like you mentioned, that uh, that he he has a friend who was also around back then who made a new one for him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so I hope that that we've given our listeners some uh, some ideas for uh, for their games in in terms of weapons and armor. Uh, I just want to mention with regards to uh, to crossbows. If you want to learn more about crossbows, how they were spanned, how they worked, and what kind of bolts were used, I can recommend a YouTube channel called uh, Todd's Workshop. Uh, where he does a lot about um, about crossbows and other things. Um, so it's a yeah, really he, cool YouTube has, channel. Yeah, he has quite a few interesting videos on daggers. So if, if that's something that tickles your fancy uh, or your ribs, then uh, take a look <laughs> at it. Um, all right. Uh, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Uh, no, uh, just remember which end to grip things and uh, point end goes into the other man. They do indeed. Uh, so as mentioned, we're off for the next couple of weeks. We're back again with Clan Book Bali on January the 8th. Please come and join us on Facebook on or on our Discord in the meantime. Uh, so it's goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Goodbye.